Welcome back to the Security Asia podcast. My name is Ron Efron. I'm excited about today's show. We have a representative from Black Peak who specializes in compliance investigations, due diligence, research, and sort of related advisory services. My guest today is Alex Nasser, and I understand you're based in Hong Kong. Is that true, Alex? Hi, Ron. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yes, I'm based uh, here in Hong Kong. Okay, great. Well, again, thank you for coming on. I know we've uh, been talking for a few months now. Um, you've all been busy with the end of the year, so I really appreciate you coming on. The, the point of investigations is obviously important to the security professionals that um, that are listening to the show. And uh, so any, uh, any insight you have is going to be great. But before we jump into it, maybe you want to give a little bit of an introduction about um, maybe about Black Peak in general and, and what is it you do? So uh, Black Peak is a global research and investigations firm. Mm-hmm. Our services cover uh, due diligence, focused research on business intelligence questions, and more forensic investigations and compliance investigations um, in relation to uh, codes of conduct and other compliance related issues. We are headquartered in Hong Kong. Uh, where we were founded, mm-hmm. um, offices worldwide. Uh, we were founded in, uh, in 2011. In Asia, we have one of the largest footprints among uh, investigations firm with, uh, I think we have over 80, we're constantly growing. We have over 80 full-time investigators in Asia. We have quite a large presence here in uh, greater China, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Shanghai, Beijing, and uh, uh, Guangzhou office that looks at uh, Japan and the Koreas in, out of Tokyo and Southeast Asia covered uh, out of uh, Singapore. And we have offices also in London, where our EMEA practice is headquartered, mm-hmm. in uh, Washington, D.C., where the Americas practice is headquartered, as well as uh, New York City. And we're opening imminently in, uh, in India and Australia, but that has been uh, uh, sort of... Delayed a bit. <laughs> Delayed a bit, yeah. Delayed a little bit over the last year for for obvious reasons. Okay, well that that's that's good, and um, and of course we'll put uh, access to the full introduction of Black Peak in the show notes, and as well as your website, so anybody that has interest can go and and visit that. So talking about investigations, like maybe can you tell us maybe in like sort of like layman's terms, like what what is the nature or how would you categorize the type of investigations you're doing? You mentioned compliance investigations. So what, how would you explain that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, and when we try to distinguish sort of these three very broad categories, and as a side note, one of the challenges is there, you know, there's not necessarily standardization within the industry um, about how, how, how these categories are, are, are set out. But uh, in general, we're pretty consistent with everyone else. We have diligence, which is pre-transaction work, usually, although there's also post-transaction diligence that can take place periodically in some cases. Business intelligence research, which generally looks to um, confirm or, or, or disprove or corroborate a hypothesis uh, prior to an investment being made or, or prior to a market entry. Mm-hmm. And then uh, compliance investigations, which generally uh, can be thought of as reactive. So when there's been a breach of a code of conduct, or there's been allegations of, uh, of some sort of fraud that have come to light, or there's a dispute. For example, these are just three sorts of examples. Uh, compliance investigations will be the pro- a process, and there's many different types that will sort of be triggered to respond to these events. And uh, where what we generally do is act as a, an independent, uh, an objective third party in conducting these or collecting uh, uh, information and or evidence as it might be relevant to a particular case. 
So that's um, and and would you say there's there's more or there's growing demand for such services over the last several years? Absolutely, that's a trend we've seen um, in Asia as well as globally. Obviously, compliance has evolved a lot over the last years. Um, codes of conduct are getting stricter. Ships with third parties are are being monitored and 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 conditions sort of stipulated more clearly. Smaller companies are are more and more adopting uh, codes of conduct. In some cases, because they're signing in their contracts uh, uh, certain um, obligations to uh, conduct their business in a, in a certain way. So it's absolutely the case. And uh, disputes as well have been on the rise, which also triggers investigation investigative work as well now. Okay. How has the investigations evolved over the last uh, over the past? They say over the last ten years or so. That's a really interesting question. The landscape has changed in a number of ways. It's very, very different to how it was 10 years ago, or you know, 15 or 20 years ago. One thing that immediately comes to mind is that investigative work has become a lot more specialized and a lot more technical. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, open source information, the various sources that you can uh, use to conduct research, has just proliferated at such a such a rapid rate over the past 10 years that now research, if you're talking about simply that process of acquiring potentially relevant information to then, you know, look through and conduct analysis on, that process of acquiring that information has become very, very technical uh, because you're often looking at, even for a single jurisdiction, you know, 15, 20 uh, unique databases, search engines, sources of information, aggregators, uh, regulatory websites, government disclosures, um, each of which has its own sort of set of conditions and a specific way uh, that research needs to be conducted. And at the same time, for individuals as well, in many ways, we have a lot more identifiers by mm-hmm. which we meet the various sort of um, information other than a person's name um, that is associated with them such as um, email or social media accounts, their employer, properties they may be associated with, phone numbers, uh, uh, social media accounts. So when you, you know, if you do the math uh, uh, and sort of look at all these increasingly sources of information and these increasing identifiers, acquiring that information is increasingly technical. And it's become a separate skill set from actually analyzing that information, although they're very much tied together in some ways. Is understanding the sources is understanding that information, but it, sa- um, it sounds like almost like like a data scientist or like big data type of approach would would be needed here. Is that would that be the right way of thinking about it? Um, that is something that I, I think a lot of people are thinking about. Um, the challenge is we're really looking at micro pieces of data and and somebody's digital footprint, and then what we need to do when we're now anal- uh, analyzing that is we're often looking, I mean, the obvious information is there. If they have a, you know, the reference in a litigation record or in a regulatory, or if they're associated with a company or an address. What's more difficult is to recognize patterns or bits of areas, maybe they've made a mistake in, in, in using one account where they wanted to hide an association with something else and identifying these more subtle patterns, which may be indicative of some sort of compliance related misconduct. And that is where it can be very tough for a big data to kind of um, efficiently process this, this information. Since it, it, we look at it as basically a qualitative process. Would a human do that work or is that, or would you have software that 
sort of tries to do the initial sort of scanning? That's that's another interesting question that I think we spend a lot of time thinking about. The thing about most of these databases and um, even search engines, uh, including, you know, Google and Baidu, uh, two big ones that we Mm -hmm. use in in part of the world, is they're to some degree set up to prevent too much automated activity. So if you look at the volume of searches you might need to run against Google, for example, to make sure that the algorithm catches everything, right? And the problem with the Google algorithm in some ways is that, you know, it's it's always changing, right? Right. Um, so basically, you have to be very comprehensive in, in, in searching every possible combination of identifiers. Um, and if that once that becomes automated, uh, uh, and Google is just one example, um, various databases as well through CAPTCHA and, and uh, you know, making you recognize traffic lights and, and, and buses, right. and, and that, can be, that can be fairly challenging. I see. So it's still largely a human process, uh, that initial data. How does somebody get into this industry? Is it, I'm, I'm assuming it's not all ex-policeman, right? <laughs> so is it, how would somebody get into this industry? Yeah, it's increasingly not, um, not ex-law enforcement. Um, it's increasingly sort of people from a research background. Mm. Um, that's, that's been the real change. So particularly if they're used to looking at qualitative research or sort of, you know, some people call sort of fuzzy data information that does not really have a binary implication and needs to sort of be interpreted in, in a broader context and may have a number of implications. So journalists is one. Uh, so people from with a social studies background is another. International relations and uh, political science majors tend to do well because they have to look at sort of similar uh, situations People from uh, former auditors and, and people from a finance background uh, mm. can do well as well, although they do have to sort of cross a, a paradigm gap. Uh, so generally speaking, it's people with a solid research sense and this, the ability to process qualitative information, think outside of the box, and um, look at the context. Well, that's, uh, that's interesting. And have there been any special, I mean, you, you mentioned some challenges, but have there been any other unique challenges that, um, that have come up in, in, in your business? There have been a number, there, 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 there. and one of them, which I think is interesting to point out, is just how quickly things have changed uh, over, you could say, the past decade, if we're just using that as sort of a, a time, time frame of reference. I mean, it's probably, it's imperfect, obviously, right? But part of the thing is, you know, since things have evolved so much, particularly in terms of um, availability of information in Asia, if we look at China, for example, the media landscape has changed so much, the availability of, of various types of corporate records and uh, financial disclosures and corporate disclosures, it's actually, there's quite a lot of information available now. But when you look at this timeline, so a media report uh, that was published five years ago or eight years ago versus one published more recently with perhaps the same content, particularly if it uh, relates to something negative or some sort of wrongdoing. Um, that time frame becomes very important because of these, you know, this rapid sort of uh, shift in in the in the um, digital and media and regulatory landscape over this period. Because obviously China's come a long way in terms of, uh, uh, of compliance, um, evolved rapidly and, and anti-corruption and everything else. So that's one of the um, challenges that comes alongside this technical sort of need to, to understand how to, how to get all this data is that you also really need to understand the history of how that landscape has evolved and, and how that's going to change the implications of what you eventually do find. Um, another interesting one, I think, to note is uh, the widespread use of personal instant, instant messaging accounts. Um, this comes up often in internal investigations where we're looking at uh, where a company will give us access to the 
corporate email accounts that they they ultimately own to conduct an investigation for regulatory or, or, or compliance misconduct uh, or breaches of codes of conduct. So the problem with this um, widespread use of personal instant messaging is that a lot of the times detailed conversation may take place on a messaging platform that the client or, or the you know the company that needs to conduct this investigation doesn't ultimately have access to. Right. And that's a real challenge, one that has changed from a number of years ago when a lot more, I think it's fair to say, was done via email. So that's another challenge. But if the device is owned by the company, I guess that's also, less, you see less and less of that today. There's more and more bring your own device. So that, that would be, I can see how that can complicate an investigation. Absolutely. Bring, bring your own device in, in, in Asia is um, very, I would say, dominant yes. among most companies we look at. And um, it can be very complicated. So for example, we have, there are some cases where somebody wants to come forward and says, look, I want you to see that particular conversation on my WeChat or something else, but obviously I'm not going to give you my device, right? I mean, the, the mobile phone is probably the most personal, sort so the, the biggest source of personal information that anyone has, right? right. I mean, I don't, I don't know a lot of people that would be willing to just hand over their a personal mobile device to their employer if they didn't have to. Yeah, I can't get my, I can't even get my kids to do that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, and the the complexities with trying to isolate an individual conversation within a messaging application, mm. um, that can be that can be quite difficult. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult situation. I think at some point there there's going to have to be a solution. So, for example, just more consistent use of uh, work issued instant messaging, and this already happens in some cases, or some sort of solution which can allow access to certain conversations or sort of a categorization. I mean, there's, there, there's going to have to be something that happens because as it stands, um, it's just a very significant blind spot in many cases. Can you try to force it through some sort of uh, like police warrant or something like that? Is that even an option in Asia? That would be very, very hard to get. Hmm. Uh, I think uh, it would need to involve, and that would be a police investigation rather than a, a corporate one. So that would already right. fall. Down. So on, on that point, you know, if you're comparing to a decade ago or so, I, um, I know that it's a lot easier to do investigations in a clean, uh, legitimate way, and and also and being um, you know, compliant with all the rules and regulations at the same time. It, has that gotten easier and easier? And and do you do you have um, like are there still other companies out there that is doing other types of like more sort of dodgy kind of investigations? As far as the investigations industry that I'm aware of, it's become extremely uh, compliant and extremely professional. And it's not that different from sort of accounting, for example. Right. Like auditing. Auditing, exactly. Uh, where we have data sets that we we can access and we have methodologies, very increasingly sophisticated methodologies to, to analyze that data. And there's absolutely no room for anything, you know, illegal or even unethical that could be construed as unethical within that. Are there, you know, does it still exist that there's firms doing things illicit in this area? I don't know. I would imagine, you know, as with, as with everything there, there may be, but okay. uh, it's, it's increasingly a professional um, and technical area. Well, I'm very happy to hear that. You know, I've been in this business for over 20 years now, and the, the, the way you're saying that it's more and more like um, like professional auditing firms, I think that's great. That gives the industry a better name, and ultimately, more companies and um, uh, managers will will want to use those services, which is ultimately better 
for the business environment and economy as a whole. So that that's good to hear. Uh, tell me, uh, Alex, has how has COVID impacted this whole um, like your business in, in general and, and investigations in particular? Well, I guess we need to categorize that as how it's um, impacted sort of the types of cases that are coming up and and sort of uh, the need for investigations as well as um, how it's impacted the you know the ability our ability to conduct mm-hmm. work in terms of, I mean, there's some overlap between the two. So obviously the dis- disruption to travel is the uh, one of the biggest overall factors. And that that's made it difficult for a lot of companies just to really keep a tab on what's going on elsewhere. Uh, because usually the structure of uh, particularly of management often assumes some degree of travel is possible. And even compliance related functions within companies, for the most part, uh, in Asia, for example, they've assumed they've had sort of a, a compliance head that works with people regionally and uh, has sometimes they'll, they'll work with internal audit teams in various offices. They won't necessarily have, rarely do have like a dedicated compliance investigations team in each, in each office. Because when, when you could travel easily, that wasn't really necessary. And uh, you know, in this, in, in that, in that context, there was a lot of travel. So that's caused a lot of disruption internally to, I think a lot of companies abilities to deal with specific Events that would normally events that would normally trigger investigation and make them go travel on site and conduct interviews and take a look at uh, uh, you know data and 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 speak with the teams there. Then obviously work from home has been a massive disruption. You can probably speak to this right. as well from a security perspective. I mean, one way to describe it really the existing security setup and checks and balances were not did not really necessarily consider that. Some did to varying degrees, right? But um, I think that's been a big factor to um, both of these, to the to the prevalence of any misconduct. And this comes amid a big sh- economic shock. I think a lot of people may have been worried about their job security, maybe their future with the company, maybe they're subject to other financial stresses outside of it, which are general stressors which um, are conducive to some degree of misconduct. So between this, it's uh, between these various factors in terms of the prevalence of misconduct, it's nobody really knows, but there's a general understanding, um, I'd hesitate to use the word assumption because nobody's assuming anything, that there has been a rise in the prevalence of fraud. Some of it's come to light or, or misconduct for companies. Some of it's come to light. Some of it has yet to come to light. And in some cases, it may be more difficult for it to come to light because of some of these factors as well. So I don't, that's a, maybe that's a little convoluted, but in terms of prevalence of misconduct, generally speaking, COVID is seen as a stressor that would exacerbate. Right. Sorry, but what are companies to do? I mean, I don't, even things get back to so-called normal, there's probably going to be more work working from home than, than pre-COVID times or some sort of hybrid system. That's what is, is probably going to happen. What are companies to do about this? And are there any solutions to this? Yeah, I, get, I think, you know, having a very good, secure cloud setup, uh, two-factor mm-hmm. authentication, you know, uh, register, registration of devices, um, a lot of authentication across use of different platforms. These are all very important and necessary things. And, and um, maybe this is a question I can uh, turn back to you from a, from a cybersecurity perspective as well. But there, I think some companies were, were better equipped than others. There are uh, large mm-hmm. firms that have had very stringent multi-factor authentication in place, uh, device registration, company-issued devices, a very good server and cloud uh, security that are probably better positioned to, to deal with this. And that's not looking at it from a, pr- a productivity standpoint. 
but just from a from a security point of view. Exactly. Yeah, look, I I agree with you. It's um there will likely be that will definitely have to be a component, and some companies have security as a bigger part of their DNA and sort of came into this with more awareness and those that may have been more um, caught by surprise. Another element I think would be education and um, awareness. So companies should be investing more in sort of education programs and awareness programs within their company. You know, security is not just doesn't, it's not limited to the security team. It, it really is. Everybody has to take part in that if you're going to have a secure organization. And possibly audits as well, um, or some 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 type of auditing um, would probably have to take place as well. One factor I think, which is somewhat related, but just in terms of um, this shift to remote working, is how to measure productivity, which I think is a question uh, a lot of a lot of companies need to think about now, who sort of depended on that to some degree on that nine to five day and and, and that physical presence in the office as an indicator. Well, the way I see it is that management theory as a whole is shifting and it sort of has been shifting and the COVID era has sort of accelerated certain trends, Mm -hmm. but we cannot measure people or employees, if you may, just by looking at them or or making sure they're in the office. It has to be um, uh, more sophisticated methods and management as a whole, management theory as a whole is going to have to evolve to accommodate that. And that is very interesting, actually. And it seems to be, you know, Different people with different sort of work habits and sort of social habits um, adapt very differently to working from home. That's true. Some people have that natural personalities or strengths that that can easily accommodate that. Others less so. But companies are going to have to go back, you know, back to training, help to be ready for this new environment. And there might be some sort of hybrid system where you work part-time at home, part-time come into some sort of hub, like sort of company hubs. But people have to learn how to live like this. You might have to be better communicators or better writers, uh, communicate in different ways. You can't just uh, you know meet next to the water cooler, so to speak, and, and right. chit chat. You have to do the same thing online somehow. That is a challenge. You know, I find that very very challenging as well. And um, but we're going to have to adapt to that because that's um, that is sort of like the new normal. Yeah, and and it can be interesting. I was talking with a colleague the other day about just you know if you're in the office. And you do find yourself looking at your phone. Um, you generally become self-conscious after you sort of look at it for too long, right? You, there's a little sort of a trigger. It's like, oops, I've been looking at my phone for, you know, two minutes now. You kind of feel self-conscious. You put it down, you get back to work. And it's sort of that because you're in this collective environment where everybody is participating in this activity of work. Whereas when you're working from home, it can often be, you know, that you just don't have that sort of awareness, uh, mm-hmm. that social environment, I think uh, makes a big difference for a bigger difference for some than others. I know a lot of analysts don't mind so much um, and researchers don't mind so much uh, working remotely. So that's sort of a, uh, you know, to some degree that can be a, a uh, relatively, I mean, obviously there's a lot of collaboration, but a, uh, an individual process to some degree. Right. So just, you know, so again, thinking about these investigations, there was one question that we talked about sort of pre-show and I, I want to bring this up here again as well. Like um, the whole concept of should corporations try to develop this ability uh, internally or outsource it or have some sort of hybrid of that? What would you say about that if if companies considering their plans for the future? Well, I don't think there's any one size fits all uh, uh, solution as you know, there really never is for anything. So that's perhaps a a platitude, but some degree of internal uh, uh, compliance capability, I think is essential, even for very small businesses. And even if that is, you know, just a compliance officer 
or somebody a central point for, for example, to 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 uh, make sure that the training's being done, to think about the awareness, to to be accountable for generally having a structure in place and the proper checks and balances in place and the proper culture in place to ensure that uh, the compliance environment is a is a good one. Now you can't prevent things from happening. That's never going to be the case, but uh, you will make it much less likely to happen and you'll be much better positioned to react when it does happen. But there's always going to be circumstances with some exceptions where companies are going to need an independent third party to come in. It might not just be due to capabilities. It could be just because there's circumstances where you want an independent third party to be to be conducting an investigation so that the conclusions won't be subject to controversy. Right. You know, the, the board or investors or anyone else later on down the line, regulators won't have any reason to believe that there was any uh, incentive or reason to try to sweep things under the rug, for example. So it can be, it can be a lot better to have a report from an external third party, but it can also be due to capabilities. I, I don't think for most companies that they would need to have sort of digital forensics uh, capabilities in-house. Right, right. Corporations perhaps, but for most companies, it's just probably not practical and, and, and wouldn't be necessary. And there's going to be certain levels and types of investigative work that unless you're doing it ongoing, and again, this relates to some degree to the to the evolving landscape, you're just not going to be positioned to conduct that yourself, whether or not you do have those teams. So some degree in in-house is, I think, very important and highly advised. But um, also part of that function would be to understand where and under what circumstances you'll need to engage a third party, get to know those third parties, understand what they can do and how they work and, and which provider might be the most suitable for, for your potential needs, you know, if it doesn't, but if something happens and um, just really be prepared and have a structure in place. Well, that, I think that's great advice. Um, I, I, I would uh, wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. Um, no matter what the size of the firm is, you can always allocate a role to a person. So you say, okay, you have a role for compliance. At the very least in meetings to be the person to raise their hands, say, wait a second, folks, I, I think we have an issue here. And and to sort of be that person in the room that's thinking about that. In the same way with financial people, you have internal audits you do on, on the financial side, and you also have external and it is simply a healthier way to manage an organization and for that to be part of the business and culture. So I would I would totally agree with what you're saying there. And I would just add on to that. If you are um, building a relationship with an external uh, service provider, work long-term with them. The more relationship you have, the better uh, value you're going to get out of that. Don't try to uh, work on a, just on a project-by-project basis necessarily. Um, Absolutely. Relationships are, are, uh, are important to develop in part because they'll they'll come to understand your organization better and be better able to navigate any uh, issues that come up. The same thing with lawyers or, or um, you know, your general finance auditor. These are all relationships that you want, generally want to have for a period of time and long-term would be better. Particularly the case with issues like COVID to understand specifically what those providers will be able to do to help you out in the various locations where, where they may need to have people on the ground. So that's just another factor to understand. You know, when there is a change in the environment like this, that would be an important time to to reassess your capabilities, both those you have internally and um, your capacity to react, as well as any external providers you have. Oh, it's very important. The fact that you have people on the ground and all around Asia Pacific is very um, is is definitely a, a strength. So, how how do you think things are going to look like in the future? Any any trends you can share with us, or any um, five ten years out? Any um, any insights? <laughs> that's that's a, a really good question. I mean, 
I think one thing we're seeing in in Asia that's an interesting trend is um, increasing adoption by smaller local companies, which are usually, you know, related maybe as third parties or part of a supply chain to 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 larger companies of codes of conduct and of compliance regimes where previously maybe they didn't have as developed ones. So that's really getting local. So China is an example of that. There's increasingly a compliance culture and, and codes of conduct led by SOEs, which now have a very stringent uh, compliance policy. So for example, it's not uncommon, no gift policies, for example, which are seen as pretty extreme are fairly common with Chinese companies. I think, I think maybe more common with Chinese companies than they are with Western companies. Mm, Western companies, yes. generally have, you know, a 500, $500 uh, uh, or, or whatever else. So vendors can still send them that bottle of wine at, at Christmas. But for a lot of companies uh, in China, they won't, you know, they can't even, they won't even take a pen, right. um, a monogram pen. So that's one thing that's happening. But as you can expect, when a new trend takes place like this, it is rather uneven. It's rather regional. And this is Asia-wide. And how stringently it's being adopted is also uneven. So that's a very interesting thing we see, um, which is quite different from, from several years back, and I think is going to continue, is this increasingly local compliance regimes and uh, codes of conduct, which need to be factored in and, and add, I mean, it's, it's a positive thing, but also add a layer of complexity because they may, they may differ from, uh, in some ways, from the, the code of conduct of, of another party that's interacting and has a contract with and ultimately has somehow necessitated some sort of compliance investigation to happen. So that is a trend. ESG obviously is, is, a, is a big trend. So, um, so just, just unpack that. So can you spell that out for us so if anybody doesn't understand that? So it relates to uh, environmental impact, social impact, and governance, corporate governance. So that's a big trend that's taking on, and it's a fantastic thing. I made this point in a in a previous uh, in a in a podcast that Black Peak recorded uh, a while back. The thing is, it's it's a very positive thing because it seeks to reconcile, you know, the values of investors and and consumers, largely in uh, in developed parts of the world, with the realities in developing parts of the world. And that's always been a, a disturbing sort of a disconnect. So it's a very positive thing. But a lot of those issues are are quite systemic and maybe not fully visible, particularly as they relate to complex supply chains and, and third parties and you know globalization. Yeah, and, and a lot of that's been in the news recently too. And it's going to continue to be. And that's something I think a lot of these issues are going to come to light. It's ultimately positive, but it's going to be a bumpy sort of a short-term ride. And there's probably going to be more of these systemic issues that, that come to light in, in not so positive a way. I understand. Okay. Well, that's great. Before we wrap it up here, is there anything else you'd like to add? I guess one interesting idea, and this relates back to an earlier point, the proliferation of technology and social media uh, has impacted investigations. And it's just the idea, a term I think is useful, um, if slightly comical maybe, is digital promiscuity, where we are sharing our data constantly with apps and websites and various uh, services. And we don't always know, I mean, if, if, every, if, if, if everyone reads all the terms and conditions they do, but I'm not so sure everybody does um, in every instance, you know, sign in with Google and, and all these uh, sign in with Facebook right. and all these, other. we don't always know how that data is. And, going to and it's not like you can negotiate those terms. I mean, you either, <laughs> you take it, take it or leave it. Right. And, and it's usually you're trying to access something and suddenly you're required to, to sign in or provide some sort of data and there's, and, and you do. And that's one of the areas, I guess, that has added sort of a technical complexity to investigative work is the inadvertent disclosure of certain 
connections or, or relationships or accounts by virtue of the fact that we don't necessarily know or individuals don't necessarily know what's going to happen with their data when they do register an app or whatever else. And sometimes that's something that can come up in, in compliance investigations in a way that we can identify you know, connections or relationships or um, activity, which might otherwise have gone unnoticed and probably that the user was trying to hide is sort of through this as a product of this age of quote unquote, uh, digital uh, promiscuity. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. So just being mindful of your time here, I, I think we're going to, we'll try to wrap this up, but th- we could easily talk for another hour on these issues and these are important issues. And you know, just hearing your last statement, I'm I'm trying to have more and more conversations with my daughter who's in middle school about this topic as well. You know, not just not just in the corporate world. So it's definitely something that we should all be uh, mindful of and and um, uh, be careful. Absolutely. Again, thank you very much for your time, and I want to thank Black Peak as well for allowing you to do this. I think this is very useful for the security professionals and the security industry as a whole. And people that listen to the show know that. We encourage security professionals to expand their knowledge, to learn more, and to really be part of the solution in their business. If you do not have an active internal compliance role or you're not dealing with investigations, speak to your uh, executive team, see what you can do to help out, because all these things are important for better governance and um, a better economy as a whole. So this is great. We will be leaving more information in the show notes on if you want to get in touch with Black Peak uh, for that purpose. Alex, I wanted to thank you once more. Would you mind maybe in the future we can get out, get back online sometime and uh, see how things are evolving, or we can maybe dive in to to different to some of these subjects in more uh, in more depth. Absolutely, that would be very interesting. And uh, thanks so much for having me on the podcast today. Great. Again, thank you very much, and I uh, hope you um, have a great day. Same to you.